about a quarter of our subjects are about the digital world and what on earth we're going to do with the situation where we've given away all our privacy, where we're completely available. And this is crept up on us pretty fast, hasn't it? So I think that it is absolutely necessary and not only just fun to be writing pieces about how to be alone and how to reclaim your privacy. Some of it is about resistance, I think. Um, And then other things are the traditional fun things about, you know, once we get back traveling, the in praise of the postcard, something real, stop sending photos and stop, you know, communicating by Instagram and thinking that that is friendship. (laughs) You know, you have to step up and actually be present at times. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a journalist for nearly 20 years, most recently as the home and design director at Departures Magazine. And this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel. All the elements of a well-lived life. You know, when I say in the beginning of each program that I've been a journalist for 20 years, Most of that time was spent in magazines. And no matter how much media has evolved, I'll always have a soft spot for something I can hold in my hands. But only if it's done well. And the London-based magazine, The Gentlewoman, is done exceptionally well. The independent title started in 2010 as an offshoot of the groundbreaking magazine, Fantastic Man. Minimalistic, extremely cool, and totally fashionable, The Gentlewoman avoided cliches and presented a vision of feminine style that was smart and low-key. It was an instant avant-garde success and changed the way fashion media catered to women. In its pages, the magazine paints movie stars and musicians with the same respectful brush as it does artists and designers. The editor-in-chief of The Gentlewoman is Penny Martin, a Scottish visionary New York Magazine once called Our Lady of Immaculate Taste. Penny is a former curator and educator before turning to magazines, and her thoughtful, down-to-earth fingerprints are found all over the title. This fall, the magazine has launched a new book just in time for a last-minute holiday gift called Modern Manners, Instructions for Living Fabulously Well, published by Fiden. I caught up with Penny Martin from her home in the UK as she was putting the finishing touches on the latest issue to chat about how the magazine got its start, what manners even means today in our crazy times, and why she absolutely hates the French exit. Before you entered the world of art and fashion, what was Penny Martin's life like growing up? Were you raised with parents who were particularly manners conscious? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I w- was brought up in an extremely rambunctious house full of animals and music. My dad was a soul singer and there was not a moment that I can remember where there wasn't kind of <laughs> yacht rock and Tamla Motown and White Soul playing at kind of an enormous uh, volume were very unpopular with our uh, our neighbours. So quite the opposite. My mother um, as a, was an art teacher. Um, so maybe, and I, don't forget that I, that was in St Andrews, which is not a kind of big metropolis. It's a kind of university town. So it's very a learned environment, but it wasn't a, a society that was conscious of of manners. So perhaps it makes sense that this Scottish girl was always asking questions of what was expected or what was required. As, I mean, growing up in a house full of music and animals, Yacht Rock and Animals sounds like a great description of, of a future magazine editor, I have to say. Yeah, the picture Daryl's Hall uh, carrying a um, Angora rabbit, that, that sort of thing. And you have this rare resume that's sort of before The Gentlewoman, where you kind of floated in between 
sort of academia and curatorial, mostly in the fashion world. Was journalism always your ultimate goal when you were starting out? Or was it something where you kind of settled into it by accident? It never was. I started out in museums. When one did art history in the 90s, as I did, <clears throat> there were only a couple of places you could go. There was a course where you could study uh, art gallery and museum studies, as I did. Or there was one that was a bit more social history and it was a bit more museum collections. And, and I steadily progressed through National Museum of Photography, Film and Television. And then uh, by the time I started in fashion, I was down in London doing PhD on um, history of design at the Royal College of Art, which was based in the Victoria and Albert Museum. So I was always flirting um, with fashion, I guess, through the, those activities, but there was a kind of very blunt handbrake turn where uh, Nick Knight approached me to see whether I would want to edit his website show studio, which he was setting up or ha had put in place with Peter Savile, the uh, art director. For It'd been around for about a year and they were looking for somebody to replace Alice Rosthorne, who'd recently become the director of the Design Museum. So in fact, People, uh, I started in digital in fashion. That was 20 years ago, almost to the month. In fact, the week that I took up my desk, uh, I shouldn't laugh because it was a horrible week. Um, it was the year, uh, the week that the uh, Twin Towers went down. Oh, gosh. And obviously fashion completely changed at that point, as all commercial things did. Uh, so that was really the sort of start of my career in fashion. And for seven years, I was commissioning digital projects and working with developers and filmmakers and the people that Nick Knight was working with and Peter Savile were working at that time, like uh, Julie Verhoeven and, and Björk and whoever else. And in fact, really, now that I'm the editor of The Gentlewoman, in 2010, I people were writing pieces about me as the one who went backwards. So at that point where it looked like there'd been an incontrovertible shift towards digital communications, I was the one learning how to make a print magazine. So you're right that it was peculiar, but there wasn't much oscillation between the two. It was very specifically a curatorial career that turned into journalism by default, by mistake, certainly not by the plan. <laughs> and what, when you were first approached to do The Gentlewoman, did you think, oh gosh, that is literally the dumbest idea I've ever heard now of all times? Was when it, What was the year that it first started? Well, we launched the first issue in 2010, but in fact, I think it was 2008 that Gert Jonkers and Jop van Bennekom of Fantastic Man came to me and said, okay, well, we're being approached by so many women that want to do a woman's version of Fantastic Man that we keep hearing that you're the person to do it. And we kind of circled each other like pigeons and sort of flirted with each other for years. And at one point, I think in 2008, they offered it to me and and somehow I stupidly didn't do it. And um, I went to become a professor at University of Arts London at L London College of Fashion. And I did that for about a year. But then I heard through the grapevine that they were thinking quite seriously about doing the magazine. And I'd heard a couple of names in contention and I was absolutely livid. Um, <laughs> and, you know, like a shot, I <laughs> scheduled a lunch with Yop and I was just like, You're still doing that magazine? And he was like, yeah. I was like, you still interested? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, you know, the rapture. Before we return to Penny, a word from our sponsor, Fritz Hansen. If you're like me, you prefer to invest in authentic design pieces. And when it comes to mid-century icons, you have plenty of options that are still in production today. One of the great masters of Scandinavian design you might not know is the late Danish designer 
Paul Kerholm. His minimalistic pieces are still made today by Fritz Hansen. And in 2021, the company is celebrating the 65th anniversary of the PK-22 lounge chair. The designer considered himself to be a furniture architect. And you can see that sharp structural style in the PK-22 with its barely there form and stainless steel base. It's the ultimate design icon and comes in various options, including leather and wicker, my personal favorite. A technical marvel of its time, the shape is so elemental to any modern interior, it's a must-have for any aficionado. To acquire a PK-22 of your own, visit fritzhansen.com. And I mean, that was the, the height of the recession. I mean, as <laughs> someone who worked, you know, what you guys would call the style press, right? Like an independent magazine, as we would say. I was in an independent magazine at the same time. And that would literally be like, I, I don't even know, like trying to get a job in the dining room of the, of the Titanic <laughs> while it was sinking. You know, it's, it's, it was li- that, that was such an insane time. You know, uh, take me back a little bit to those early days. Well, it's funny you say that because uh, one of the communications that Yop and I had had between them offering me it and me saying, oh, I'm going off to work, become a professor. And then me saying, take me back, was me sending him an article from, I think, Women's Wear Daily saying, you know, independent publishing is finished. And I remember sending him that article saying, look, are you still serious about this? You know, everybody's saying this is not the time to launch a magazine. But I think the atmosphere and the structure and the economy of our independent publishing company is so careful and so specific. You know, we weren't in this to be carried around on a sedan chair and be staying at the Algonquin in the way that many editors saw that as integral to their work. You know, we were a really scrappy startup and we pretty much still are. And our resources went into other things. So I think I was just really lucky to be invited by these extremely careful, that's one word to put it, um, Dutch guys who were, you know, really strategic and pretty sensible about the way we um, funded it. So it was never a case that, you know, we were there for the party or all the kind of trimmings. And we s- still don't really see many of those. It, we, we, it all goes into the writing and the photography. And can you tell me a little bit about the original editorial concept for the magazine? Because to me, as a media person, one of the things I admire about it is its consistency in how it sort of found a kind of format and a look and a feel to it that it stayed really true to. And it's been so great. It's only gotten better doing essentially the same type of thing. I couldn't say that, oh, it had this one era and then it changed and then it kind of had another era and so on. When you first sat down to come up with the first couple of issues, what were you trying to accomplish? Like, what were you, what was your thinking like? Well, I was really lucky, wasn't I? Fantastic Man was a very clear offering as a publication. It was devoted to long-form personality-centered journalism with a candid, non-commercial photographic policy where things were never represented as anything other than what they are, uh, which sounds a bit prosaic, but that's literally what it was. And in the first instance, the task for me was to figure out which bits of those still applied to a woman, because there was a slightly circular exercise going on anyway, wasn't there, in that the tone in Fantastic Man was arch and it was rather like men being spoken to by a woman's magazine of yore. It had a kind of slightly arch, Diana Vreelandish, hey, not quite as hey girlfriend as but magazine, it's, its parent 
publication in the company, but it still had that kind of familiarity and kind of slight wit. So it was it was more about working out whether to talk to a woman in the way that we spoke to men, like you know, that, that didn't work. So we needed a slightly more deadpan mode of address that was more appropriate to the kind of angular badass women that we wanted to read our our magazine so in a way it was kind of like a negative imprint in one part was looking at what bits should and should not be like fantastic man and then the other part was looking at what was available to women at that time anyway and it was the zenith of the weekly magazine um in the uk the sort of uh, launch of grazia it'd been enormously successful and, and terribly uh, influential where it was a lot about celebrity content, sort of sex in the city, philosophy towards consumerism. You know, even your friends were consumed, uh, or friendship was. Uh, and also a sort of really limited offering of women on covers and really shrieking neon cover lines that really spoke of the language of uh, e-commerce. So the blending of what was available um, in terms of journalism online and what was happening on the page was what we didn't want. So in a way, Yop always says that Dutch people are motivated by what they don't like. <laughs> um, and that was kind of easier. It was easier to say what we didn't want it to be than what we wanted it to be. But of course, we had a really strong paradigm in um, uh, Fantastic Man. So that was the kind of initial uh, starting point. And we, as you say, in the earliest days, we came up with a few issues that were quite you know, we used the word dry. I mean, it can't have been literally dry, otherwise people wouldn't have found it entertaining. But it was very black and white photography centred, um, a lot of still life, quite specific and kind of modernist in its tone and content, very binary in terms of its um, journalistic offering. It was either Q&A or long form interviews. There wasn't much besides. And there was a very particular pool of women represented. So it tended to be <laughs> women my age, I guess. Um, you know, the Phoebe Philos and Inez Van Lamsweerds. Not Actually, we never managed to lasso PJ Harvey, but those kinds of women that we thought of role models and having very um, oppositional maybe uh, approaches. Which was very uh, noticed and avant-garde at the time in a weird way. It was it, it was sort of anti-youth culture, anti-sort of digital in a way, in all ways, both in the fact that it was a print magazine, but also in who it chose to show in a very contemporary way women of of over the age of even just the over the age of 30 and sometimes in some cases yeah one of our most successful covers of course was an 86 year old woman in uh angela lansbury and that became a kind of iconic uh cover for us in terms of it just said a lot about what we wouldn't wouldn't do as did having adele giving Adele her first ever woman's magazine cover. I mean, it was amazing to me that she'd not had anything before then, but then it tells you a lot about what the women's uh, publishing uh, industry considered appropriate that time. Of course, it was, pr it was pretty soon that she got many covers. And I heard from her publicist that our magazine was getting slapped down on their desks saying, look, you know, you, you missed a trick here. Your point about it um, remaining consistent. Well, that is the, task is to ensure that you stay true to those values that you set out with. But at the same time, you actually can't literally stay the same. So if you put two issues together, you would notice that perhaps we started to include sort of camper, warmer 
sort of looser photography, sort of more sensual subjects, some more object-based pieces in the modern details and modern manners essays that we published. But you know, the other women types of women got introduced to the table. So yeah, we should we wouldn't have launched with Pamela Anderson, but by issue, I don't know, something like eight, we'd profiled her because it was clear what our standards were and what we wanted to say about women. And it was fun to have Pamela Anderson at the party. But had we started with her, perhaps it wouldn't have been as clear statement, an opening statement. So I had an interesting conversation with um, Ilsa Crawford, who was famously the founding editor of um, Elle magazine, amongst many other things, and obviously a brilliant interior designer. And uh, she, her advice to me was never redesign. So the trick is to make sure you've got enough novelty running through your magazine at all times so that it can it stays consistent and that your readership don't get confused by you saying, do you know what, we were wrong about that. You should never be wrong. You should always be fresh and keep revising. So we're very critical of what we do. And, you know, the opening editorial meeting after we've just published the last one is always like, well, that was terrible and that didn't work. And look at that, that mistake. And, you know, we're, <laughs> we're, it's rare for us to really get much pleasure out of what we've just done. Often it's the opposite. But I think that, that starts us off on the next foray. And it's all about making a kind of corrections and accommodations based on what you've just done. So I would say that the photography became livelier and warmer and perhaps you know, less um, based on still life, etc. And I think that probably changed the tone. But I think it's always about introducing surprises and th- that often comes from the women in the first place. Before we return to Penny, a word from our sponsor, Fort Street Studio. Fort Street Studio's sumptuous carpets are expertly hand-knotted and executed in nuanced color combinations that are the signature of the studio's painterly designs, which originate from watercolor art. The brand services a global clientele from its flagship showroom in Manhattan, where a team of specialists guide interior designers, architects, and collectors through the studio's offerings. The legendary outfit has an extensive catalog where each design can be customized endlessly but they also carry stock carpets in standard sizes. As the offerings of Fort Street Studio are so expertly hand-knotted, photos rarely do these works of art justice. And that's why an in-person consultation is so key. Only then can the subtleties of rug design and its many colors can truly come to life. To book your own consultation, visit fortstreetstudio.com. Penny, one of the great things about The Gentlewoman is, you know, who you choose to profile and photograph. So as a magazine editor who now books people for a podcast, I'm wondering, who do you consider to be your biggest get so far? Nobody would have expected Beyonce to want to spend that amount of time with an independent publication and be prepared to be represented in a way that was completely... um, antithetical to the way that she was representing herself in contemporary press at the time. When we did her in 2013, she was on the Mrs. Carter tour. And I remember she was on American GQ wearing a pair of panties that zipped up the front. (laughs) Uh, And then we had her, you know, clothed to the chin uh, in Dior, uh, you know, looking really classical and demure. And I think that was a massive compliment to us. Not to say that that was, you, you know, that was a big get, but that wasn't necessarily a, a reader pleaser. You know, there's plenty of people that felt that we should never do Beyonce. We were the magazine that wouldn't. Yes, I got press saying that. 
But I felt that that really changed things for us in the way that as Adele and Angela did. I think it was great to do Castor Semenya. That was completely wonderful. Um, uh, who would have thought that Cindy Sherman would allow another photographer to make her over and uh, collaborate on our cover? I mean, what an incredible compliment to us and to Ines van Lamsweerd uh, and Vinod Matadin. That that was extremely special. But there's other, you know, things that you you really love in there. I love doing Martha Stewart. She gave great <laughs> advice. There's a beautiful profile of Sinead O'Connor um, at a really difficult time in her life. And that was really incredible. So, you know, you fall in love with the issues for lots of different reasons. And remember, we're working on them for six months and they're about, you know, 300 words long. They're practically a book. You you get invested in them in different ways. But I know the covers that really did something for us. I think that Sophie Elmhurst did an absolutely peerless profile of Math- uh, Margaret Atwood at the time of the Testaments. Um, it's a great piece of writing. Um, so there's lo- there's lots to love, but yeah, you form attachments for different reasons, knowing that, that those people did something different for you. And now we have Little Sims at the time of her amazing uh, new album. So y- you know that 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 sometimes they're timely, and other times you catch people between projects. And I think for us, it's really important that you get a taste of both, because sometimes you can get the sense of somebody on a junket. And it's among many different interviews. And then sometimes you catch somebody in downtime and you get an interview with them that you would never get if they were pushing a product. The magazine's new book, Modern Manners, Instructions for Living Fabulously Well, is a collection of tips, tricks, lessons and opinions on all aspects of life today. But it's not just about prim and proper etiquette. Instead, it's like a handbook for being, well, cool in a variety of ways, some of them quite down to earth. There's advice on how to be bored, why postcards are still a thing, and the ins and outs of what to consider before becoming a godparent. So of all things, why did you choose to do a book on manners, especially today when we're so you know disconnected from reality so much of the time? Well, we always had been publishing these pieces since around about the fourth or fifth issue. And to come back to what I originally said about us putting out magazines that were just about interviews, whether they were Q&A or long form, steadily we started to introduce smaller pieces. Um, and you know, from an editorial point of view, that was just to introduce something a little bit more entry level to read. That it, You didn't have to read 4,000 words in order to dip in and you could read a 3,000, smart 3,000 word piece. And these started to grow in that we started those calling those the modern details. And they were things like, you know, would you wear a leather cap inside or uh, why we should drink sherry again? Those kind of really simple kind of uh, consumer journalism things, but with a kind of smart take on them. And they started to evolve into kind of slightly more advice-based pieces like arriving alone at the party, how you deal with going to an event when you know not a soul there uh, and you don't know if you want to stay and what are the tips, etc. To things about, okay, so traveling alone, you don't want to stay captive in your uh, hotel room. How do you go and have a drink alone at the bar without implying certain things, dealing with certain things? Uh, how do you deflect the kind of unwanted attention? Those kinds of takeaways. So when Feigen came to us a year ago, a year and a half ago, and said, do you want to do a book about the gentlewoman? You know, we knew we didn't want to do the book about our um, entire magazine, because I think sometimes that can be a mistake with the periodical. It can create a kind of before and after. <laughs> you put it that they can sometimes be a grave. <laughs> so that was enough to make me think, okay, I better come up with a different idea. But also, I think that 
the kinds of conversations that I was having with my favorite friends over the lockdown were about resets and about changing your mind about certain things or or resolving to live your life in a certain way so I felt it was really timely and you know we've got some really funny subjects that's been the the sort of pleasure of the exercise and do you think that the pandemic and lockdown has sort of offered us a chance for a reset on on the idea of manners or do you think it's just going to like everything else accelerate history and sort of degrade maybe perhaps manners in general what do you think about this moment and and manners well about a quarter or more, even more of our subjects, um, I notice when I look at the contents page, are about the digital world and what on earth we're going to do with the situation where we've given away all our privacy, where we're completely available, um, where we've got no, uh, we're staring at screens and we've got no uh, mental space. Um, and this has crept up on us pretty fast, hasn't it? So I think that we can't have been unaware of it in this last year that looking back 20 years ago, the idea of being bothered by email all day and all night and, and you know, photographing ourselves in this kind of detail, it, it, you know, it, I think it is absolutely necessary and not only just fun to be writing pieces about how to be alone and how to reclaim your privacy. And, you know, if you want to be a writer that's anonymous, so be it. You don't need to be photographed and those kinds of things. So some of it is about resistance, I think. And then other things are the traditional fun things about, you know, once we get back traveling, the in praise of the fo- the, uh, the postcards, something real. Stop sending photos and stop, you know, communicating by Instagram and thinking that that is friendship. <laughs> you know, you have to step up and actually be present at times and thinking that certain things stand for anything. So a lot of the things seem to be sociological, but maybe in the context of the gentlewoman and the way that we write about them, they are also about, many of them are this kind of advice and tips that women exchange in the pursuit of creating friendship. I think that's the way that female friendship, that's the currency. So I think that not only is this, does this book have the tone of women talking to each other? You know, you look in the index and you see a rather fabulous range of women have contributed or been quoted in it. I think it's about 100 women. And really, in the same way that our 24 covers of the Gentlewoman magazine are a constellation of the women that we really admire as role models, look at the back of this book and you sort of think, who are the women in the last 10 years, according to the Gentlewoman? Who are the people with the sophisticated advice that you would go after? If you want to decide what's really expected of you as a godparent um, or how to throw a party or how to be a better guest or why uh, liquid soap is egregious, then, you know, these are the people to ask. And and they're really forthcoming and opinionated because they know that that's the kind of request from the gentlewoman. We want people to go beyond their usual kind of publicist screened quotes and and step up a bit. So it's 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 quite you know, I think you get the tone of a kind of bunch of women arguing it out at the dinner table. And I love the chapter you wrote on the folding coat hanger, which is like <laughs> an example of kind of a very specific, like, you know, at a perhaps out of left field, unexpected part of the book, which is what makes it so great. Tell me a little bit about how this idea came up and why you thought, oh, I got to write this one myself. Well, I do really have one. And I was moaning about the fact that in the days, it must have been around the time of the sort of Celine unlined cashmere coat. I remember a couple of instances where before I 
got in there, the waiter or the coat check would have hung up an unlined coat on a peg and immediately you've got this big hump that you cannot steam out of this jacket. So this must have been the conversation that inspired it. But in a way, what it tells you is kind of the way that the gentlewoman is made. That's the kind of conversation I would have been having with my colleagues at that time. And we would have thought about how to turn that into a piece. And it tells you a little bit about restaurant culture, etc. But of course, it's slightly preposterous. Do I really whip one of those out at every occasion when I'm uh, out for dinner? No. So there's an element of invention, you know, of course, um, something like uh, how to be idle um, is a sort of slight exaggeration, though uh, Anne Friedman, the writer of that essay, um, indeed was going to um, uh, ring fence a month of her time in order to do absolutely nothing and then wrote ab- about it. But, you know, you, these these kinds of topics don't come to me as a pitch. Quite often, they tend to be the product of a kind of rather laboured conversation about, do women still cut fringes into their hair? Or is a middle parting acceptable? That's the kind of conversation, you know, does anyone eat trifle anymore? Those are the kinds of things that might be the subject of a conversation. And, you know, for instance, in the new issue of The Gentlewoman, there's just one in praise of the boiled egg as the perfect portable snack, even comes with its own wrapper. Um, those are the kinds of things that might make a piece. I mean, there's a piece about how to freeze milk into ice cubes so that you can put them into your cereal in the morning and not dilute the milk whilst keep it really cold. I doubt there's that many people that do that, though I do know one. So quite often they're just funny little tips that I've picked up and we've kind of escalated. There is a great section about uh, drinking alone and it's sort of this example of where modern manners sort of collide with issues of gender equality. Um, tell me a little bit about that particular chapter. That came out of a conversation uh, with the writer um, Anne Friedman about the solitary drink. I think she described herself having a whiskey at the end of a writing day. It actually, now I think about it, it must have come up from that mental image of Joan Didion taking her drink in the swimming pool at the end of her writing day. She said that once she finishes, she spends an hour just going over what she's written. She stands in the swimming pool with a drink. And I think I must have been discussing that with Anne. And of course, that soon escalated into, well, how do you actually do that? Because, you know, in the UK, certainly when I was a girl, there were many bars that still had what was called a ladies lounge. Like women literally weren't allowed to drink at the bar. Uh, or even in the bar. Um, And it would have been assumed that they were soliciting in many places. I mean, that's all about what's projected onto them and not literally what they were doing, of course. But that in turn means that if you go to, I don't know, Detroit on business and you're sitting in the bar of your hotel, that, you know, it might seem fair game that you're going to have to deflect lots of unwanted attention, etc. And she started talking about the kind of tips that she had for, you know, it's necessary to know your bartender so that they deal with a lot of that for you. And a lot of your eye contact with them will imply to other people that you've already got a closed circuit of communication. You're not looking for further attention, etc. And just the the tips and the background. And uh, she and I were talking about the fact that I used to work in a library that had an uh, element of the archive um, that was devoted to an action against a, a hamburger bar um, where until I think it was 1978, if a woman went into that bar on their own after eight o'clock in the evening, it was assumed that they were soliciting. And um, there was a lot of obviously feminist pushback to that. But, um, you know, that's not so long ago. I was only six when that was the case. So it's just that idea about um, inveigling your way into what's assumed to be a masculine environment and making it 
yours on your terms and how to do it stylishly. Um, and I think that extends to lots of things that we do with the gentlewoman. We've done cards nights and men's clubs that don't admit women. Um, and, you know, that frisson of excitement about being somewhere where you're supposedly not meant to be is always rather stimulating. The book is called Modern Manners, but I'm wondering while you were putting it together, if you ran into this inherent tension between traditional ideas of how a woman should behave and the realities of contemporary life. You might divide the book into traditional subjects like tipping or uh, how to be a good guest um, at a party. You know, what is expected of you when you go off to the south of France? Is it truly the free holiday that you think it is, etc.? Um, and those might have cropped up in traditional etiquette manuals like Debrett's, etc. But as you said, that there's a kind of good chunk of them that are now about modern scenarios like how on earth do you stop the flow of uh, email when you're supposedly on holiday? What is the best way to compose an out-of-office message uh, that will truly <laughs> do its job? Um, or how to be alone? All those kinds of things that are kind of post-digital. And then there's some other things that are just a little bit more um, cheeky and contemporary, like the politics of the menstrual cup and how to use one in a public bathroom, God knows. Uh, or, you know, what drugs can you not live without? Of course, we're talking about legal drugs, but uh, well, not everybody is in that section. But that's where we ask a whole bunch of uh, our peers the same question, and they come up with lots of different um, uh, answers to that. And that's kind of where people get to talk about the fact that they don't, they don't believe that recreational drugs are worth taking anymore or, or you know, all those kinds of things. So that's kind of a, maybe a bit more of a kind of flourish and a bit more personal style based, less uh, deferential to the old subjects. And um, the last chapter is on the art of the goodbye. So I wanted to ask you as someone who you know, of course, I'm sure has been to many events in her day. Are you a fan of the French exit of sort of leaving, <laughs> leaving without saying goodbye? I am not a fan of the French exit, not least because my Dutch colleagues are very good at this. They've left me at many a party on the dance floor and suddenly maybe they got a better offer. Or who knows what happened as they danced off into the night and I had to figure out how to get home. So certainly not, though I see why it's very useful. <laughs> Thank you to Penny Martin, the team at The Gentlewoman, and the folks at Fiden for making this episode happen. The editor of this episode is Stan Hall. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Grand Tourist. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen, and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. <laughs>